Welcome to the History of Networking, where we drag all of the skeletons out of the wiring closet and ponder the ghosts of protocols past. Well, good morning, Donald. Morning. I see the beautiful sunlight outside behind you in the window there. It's awesome. And this morning we have with us uh, Daniel Bovia. Daniel is on a Greek island. Yes. Basically, when I look outside my window, all I see is olive trees. This morning, we are talking about networks in Europe from 1984 to 2009. I forgot actually to mention one thing. One, one thing which was funny at the end of Earn is that all what I've described about the, this Earn struggle with the OSI and with the, uh, and with the PTTs basically focalized a lot the attention of the European Commission to Earn is evil, Earn must die, we need OSI protocols, totally overlooked TCPIP as a protocol, being non-European. And that basically the joke that we were playing, you know, between me and Daniel Kahnberg was that like, was thanks to Earn, that was like the lightning rod getting all the discharges from the EC, that he was able to organize RIPE nicely you know, and quietly in the background and nobody was noticing until it was too late. And all of a sudden, puff, RIPE, IP is there in the light and everybody is using it. And the, and the EC, the commission said, what happened? <laughs> we, we were barking at the wrong tree, basically. And so that, that's the way it was. By the way, there were still some NGE nodes uh, of the Bitnet Earn protocol uh, back in still in 2001. I was able to find the network. When I was at its maximum, the network had about 3,500 mainframe nodes connected worldwide, you know, Japan, uh, um, Europe, uh, Middle East, uh, some nodes in Africa, Egypt, Canada. Then starting from 91, I think, was the apex, and then started going down because the universities were phasing out these big mainframe computers. But still, I found a, a routing table in 2001 that had 179 nodes in it. So there might still be some nodes out there that still use this protocol. I don't know. I wasn't able to find anything anymore. So anyway, like I said, 95, I get this call from one of the guys that used to work at UT Dallas uh, that I was very friend with a very smart guy called David Lipke. David Lipke is uh, one of the guys that helped me sort, sort in the routing problem back then at the beginning when we had two different routing uh, products in, in uh, Europe and the United States. We became friends and he was an incredible engineer. By then, in 95, he had moved from UT Dallas and had joined AOL and had become one of the main architects, engineers, architects of, of the AOL system. So he called me and said, we are coming to Europe. We are launching American Online in UK, Germany, France. It would be happy if you can join us and help us there. So, 1995, American Online makes a joint venture with a large media content company in Europe called Bertelsmann. has several branches. Uh, one of the most famous is probably uh, the BMG, Bertelsmann Music Group. There are several American artists signed up. And the idea was to associate... Uh, network access to content content providers, right? So you have you have the content, we have the mean to deliver it to customers, so let's join forces together and we create a business, which was a great idea. Only Bertelsmann was based in, in Germany and these people were kind of very special. So uh, there were a number of interesting, interesting cultural clashes that took place between the management of American Online and management of Bertelsmann. Anyway, the idea was to create services, launch and operate services in Germany, UK, and France at first, and maybe other European countries, it works well. 
the system of AOL I learned back then was a client-server architecture. Basically, the network status with the network layer was all IP, no problem there, but they were managing this kind of closed environment through the client. Uh, the concept is, oh, the internet is a jungle out there. You don't know what you find, but if you are within our protected environment of the air client, nothing bad is going to happen to you or to your kids. So we provide you specialized content you can find only on AOL. And you can also go and browse over the internet if you want, but be careful, there's a jungle out there. So uh, AOL had uh, programmers writing this AOL client that would run on, on PCs and on Mac. And on the host system, there was a bunch of Stratus computers and a lot of scripts and processes developed by by AOL to connect to the client and respond to the various clicking buttons of the graphical user interface of the AOL client. So the question was how you transfer the data from the customers to the, to the Stratos system and back. So AOL in the United States back then was a large dial-up network, basically. Uh, people were, were dialing up in the night with their little modems and then, uh, and then with the chirping sound, you know, and synchronizing and eventually connecting. And uh, they were paying by the minute. And the same model was applied to Europe. So you, you launch your modem, you launch your client, client launch the modem, the modem connects, and when you're connected, the, the clock starts ticking and you pay a certain amount of money per month. So that had some success. Uh, it was getting pretty, pretty good. But then uh, in 96, the UN management decided to go unlimited, meaning flat fee for everybody, all you can eat, you, we don't meet a connection anymore. As you may imagine, that exploded the network because people were careful about how long they were spending online because they only spent online time to just browse a few things and mail and then disconnect. When you get unlimited, you connect in the morning and you leave your modem connected all day long. Anyway, it's not going to cost you anything, which basically saturated the entire network. There was a big crisis, went on all the newspapers in the United States, all busy signals to people trying to connect to AOL. And a similar thing happened here in Europe, actually, because they wanted to go in parallel. So we had to run like crazy to build more and more infrastructure, add modems. And back then, the first uh, 64K connections started showing up, uh, you know, at least in Europe. In the US, it was still very tricky because it depends on how far you are from the central office when you dial your phone line, right? I mean, if you are under a 20 miles set of telephone poles, eventually, you know, the signal gets jittery and, and complicated and you lose a lot of, you may have the bandwidth, but the throughput is not so good and the, the networks don't stay up. So in any way, we had daily meetings in the United States, the, the AOL had daily meetings called the System Quality Task Force meetings where they were looking at the performance of the day before, how many disconnection of customers, how many processes saturated on, on the the uh, Stratus computers and so forth and so forth, how much we can we may add here, how much we may add there. And the main problem I had as being the guy in charge of procuring the connectivity for the European countries is that most of the data anyway was in the US because AOL or not AOL back then in, in, in the 90s, early 90s, most of the notes were still in the United States. So all the servers or, you know, all this, this uh, access, the content was mostly in the United States. So I needed a lot of transatlantic capacity to connect the European guys to the American systems. Also, all the hosts were in the United States. There was no, no mainframe database here. Everything, you know, was, was down in the United States. Now, keep in mind, at that time, the monthly rental for circuits in Europe like a Paris-Frankfurt circuit, the E1s, T1s, 
costed about $50,000 per month, okay? In the United States, a circuit of the same land costs $2,500 per month. So it's like 20 times more. So it was a huge draw on, on the business uh, that these guys were trying to make. You think that was just because of the lack of cables at the time? I'm talking about terrestrial lines. It was the PTTs. They were the only one that could sell you circuits. Yeah, because it was just, they could just charge they could that. Charge they could charge that. Yeah, so they had no alternative, right? It grew to the point where in, in 1998, AOL in Europe spent over $37 million per year for the capacity, the transatlantic bandwidth between Europe and the United States. $37 million per year just to pay for the bloody lines, okay? And the projection was by Y2K, by year 2000, to exceed $60 million. Now, I had to manage this capacity because every time you bought a new T1 or a new E1 across the Atlantic, that was a huge amount of money per month. So I had statistics, thanks, at least this client service system gave me a lot of statistics. I didn't have to create my own, you know, system like I did for Earn before pinging sites and stuff. I had statistics every day about how many users we had at peak, uh, what kind of average throughput they needed, uh, what kind of you know, uh, disconnection, abnormal disconnection I had, and so forth and so forth. So I had prepared some models, and, and it took about three months from order to delivery for a new T1 across the Atlantic. So I had to anticipate what the usage was going to be in three months and put the order in, but not too early, otherwise they will have to pay one extra month a circuit that is not used or not being below because otherwise there will be traffic that will not go through and customer will complain. It was like a balancing act, you know, juggling with these numbers. The interesting thing, I mean, you, you guys know network very well, but something is a bandwidth, a nominal bandwidth you buy for a circuit, and then there is the real throughput, which is not the same thing, of course, right? So, and I, had, I built that into my model very conservatively. I said, okay, throughput of a usable line, 70% of the bandwidth, no more. And then statistics later showed me that, in fact, at times, you know, when there was really overload, I would go over, easily over 90%, but in bad moments, I was as low as 60%. When there's a whole wealth of data somewhere, probably now AOL is totally lost, but they had data that could be really used to write scientific papers about it because we were really kind of the big boys on the market back then. You know, I was a guy in charge of buying capacity for American line transatlantic-wise. I had all the telcos guy calling me. <laughs> Can we meet? Can we offer you this? Can we offer you that? You know, because it was, I was the big whale they were trying to catch, right? I have to admit, I had a lot of fun back then planning all these things. Now, uh, eventually, the main problem with AOL appeared to be what they called the abnormal disconnects. This was also pretty famous. There were jokes about it in cartoons on the internet. The, the guy that is trying to download this big file and all of a sudden, poof, the network goes down and he loses and he has to start again, you know? And then we were studying this and trying to improve the access networks because we were buying access networks from the local PTTs because you had no choice. Like in France, you had to buy the access network from France Telecom and the UK from BT and, and in Germany from Deutsche Telekom. And we were hammering these people saying, you know, we want, uh, you know, 100% reliability and, and uh, dial-up network is the crappiest kind of network you can imagine, of course, because it's just dial-up. You know, you don't know which, which equipment you're going to land and out there. So we were having each country had a different ratio. You know, we were studying, okay, Germany versus France versus UK. What is the percentage of abnormal disconnects? 
And then we've been, you know, we were collecting statistics with the, what we call the terminals, interface handlers, where a bunch of servers that were uh, accepting the connection from the clients and they were providing these statistics. And you know what it turned out after a while? Is that it was the DAOL client that was disconnecting. It was not the network. <laughs> they were disconnected coming from the, the dial-up network, of course, at the network layer. But every now and then, basically, the client would, would screw up something in this because it was just scripts going on, you know, for, tra- for transporting this thing. And then the client will get stuck and then the line will drop. And so it was not, was not the dialogue problem, it was like the client problem. And every country had it different because the three clients in the three countries were three different bunch of codes, were not the same because each language has its own peculiarities. Each client had its own interface, graphical user interface with different colors, with different shapes and stuff. So that's why we had this diversity between the three countries, you know. And that was like, when I discovered that, I said, we've been spending hours in trying to figure out what the problem was in the network when the problem is not in the network. But, but that was... Uh... <laughs> it's not the network. <laughs> mean, mean, gives, gives new meaning to mean time to innocence. <laughs> and you know how, you know, you know how I, how I found it out? is that I had statistics about how, peop- how long people were staying connected because when you connect with the client, we know when you sign in and when you sign off. And we had the number of normal disconnects for each country. And I started looking at these charts and I said, wait a minute, these charts are, are strangely synchronous, you know? There's something going on here because you could, put, you could overlap the charts of percentage of a normal disconnect and session length on average per country. And these two curves would just go like this. And in fact, if you think about it, whether it's a network problem or, or, a, or a client problem, the more somebody stays connected to a dial-up network, the more chances he has that eventually he's get kicked out. Because if there's a problem somewhere, the longer you stay there, the more probability you have that eventually you get kicked out if you don't log in, log off yourself. So the longer the session, the higher the number of disconnects. And then something clicked and I said, wait, there's not only, cannot only be the network here because this is too, this too, too parallel. And then I made a connection, then it turned out that, yeah, it was the client, <laughs> it was not the network. So, but I really had fun times studying these things because I had a huge amount of data. And, and if, if you don't have data, you're basically flying your network blind, right? Because you don't know what's happening. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because for one thing, the lower real bandwidth or good put or throughput, as opposed to what the, what the nameplate or the, what's on the nameplate is such a common problem. And it's still around today, right? I mean, even with cell phones and hardware, I mean, even routers and switches and everything, it, you don't really know what you're going to get. I mean, you can, it's like, it's like televisions now are 55 inch class. What does that mean? Like, is, that, is it really 55 inches? What are you doing? 50, what class? Is, it's, a, it's a T1 class link. Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> so anyway, the next interesting thing that happened back then is that really at that point, all this green paper and stuff that the European community really started pushing art and the telecom monopoly said to stop, basically. So that created real open market kind of situation. And this started really around 93, mid-94. And I always make this parallel when I think about it, like to go back to the zoo, like in each country in Europe, there was one incumbent uh, telephone provider, the, the public PTT. They were the masters on their land. 
Nobody could come and disturb them in their own country. They could not go out to other country and disturb the others. So imagine this is a zoo where everybody is in his own cage. You know, every animal is in his own cage and nobody can go across. So they live the way they live. They do it good or bad. Now, all of a sudden, you take all the cages away. And all these animals are free to roam throughout the rest. So they can go go and bite the tail of the other guy beside and try to impose themselves in their territories. And that's exactly what happened in Europe. They took away the monopoly. All of a sudden, all these PTVs were suffering because everybody else was coming in trying to offer similar services. But at the same time, they could go out to other countries offer similar services. Plus, very, very interesting also is that private companies... Not public companies, private companies can come up and file to become a telecom operators in Europe, which was already the case in the United States for many years, of course. So you had this whole plethora of new telecoms popping up here and there and start uh, to buy wholesale from the incumbent because they had the infrastructure and sell retail at a much cheaper price. So like Global Crossings, who are we talking about? AT&T, yeah, okay. Exactly, Global Crossing, AT&T, uh, Cable and Wireless and WorldCom made a joint venture to create the first private transatlantic cable called Gemini, 1996, okay? Gemini was about 12 STM16's capacity. It was, uh, it was redundant, though. So it was a 30 gigabit worth of bandwidth that was restorable, meaning it was not a single cable, it was a loop. So if, if one of the two branches of the cable were cut by a, by a fishing boat, the service would still go through unless they oversold it, of course, but they didn't. So, and this uh, created a fantastic period because you were really able to see these prices, you know, kind of crumbling because the monopolies were gone. You could file to get the telecom lines. The infrastructure was, was privatized, both terrestrial and submarine. So the new transatlantic cables came in, like Atlantic Crossing, uh, there were others. And they even invited me as... I was AOL, so in theory, I was the user. The PTTs had the number of transatlantic cables called TAT, TAT 13, 14, 11, etc., etc., et and they were putting the money together to build these cables. They were building a new cable called TAT, TAT 14, and they invited me to participate at their meetings in their club to say, well, you are AOL, you are big, so you should be, you should be a partner in TAT 14. So they wanted AOL to become a partner in, in the building of the transatlantic cables, but AOL back then, especially in the United States, they focused on content. They didn't want to, to become a telco provider. And that was actually, at the end, they spelled kind of the damage of AOL in Europe and the United States, but that's a different thing. It's kind of hard to remember how fast they were growing. I went there and I said, look, we can save a lot of money if we do this, you know? And they said, no, no, we don't want that. Try to figure out a way that we can benefit from this new situation without becoming a telco, without filing for being a telco. So what was happening is that if you were a telco, you could go to one of these companies and buy what was called an IRU. An IRU and a transatlantic cables mean an indefeasible right of usage, which means you buy a capacity, you pay it up front, and it's yours for the lifetime of the cable, which is normally estimated about 10 years, okay? Plus, there are some yearly operation and maintenance charges, but that's, that's the, the bulk. So basically, you could go and buy that and file for license and use it, but I couldn't, I could, I can buy it, but I couldn't fight for license. So I went to these people that were running the Gemini cable and I said, look, you know, I can become a telecom provider tomorrow. I can buy the IRU, but you don't want me to do that because I will be 
competitors to you now, and I have the users and I have the traffic. So why don't we find a deal whereby you get the IRU in my behalf uh, as AOL, I pay you up front to finance the purchase of the IRU, and you lease it back to me, but at a flat price, not at the monthly price anymore. Like I give you the money to buy the IRU, and you turn around and, and you lease it to me at the same price up front. And after some, you know, the, some people say, no, no, I can't do that. No, it's not possible. And then I eventually, insisting, I managed to find some people at a WorkCom uh, that said, you know what? Let's do it. What do you need? So at the time, I needed an STM1 to UK, two STM1s to Germany, and a small DS3 to France, which was still the small business. I mean, STM1, we are talking about STM1, you can squeeze out 155 megabit out of STM1. So I needed 155 megabit across the Atlantic from UK, 300 from Germany, and, and only a, a, a T3 on a DS3, you can put a T3 on E3, which is either 45 meg or, or 34, depending which time they use. They said, okay, you can have this for $29 million, one-time payment up front. They are yours for 10 years. So basically, that meant that I drove the price, that deal, from like the cost per megabit. If you look at the cost per megabit, okay, we were paying about, like I told you, 30, almost $30 million per month. So the cost per megabit went from $18,000 per month to $400 per month across the Atlantic. There were people at the offices in Europe that were, when they saw me, they kissed me because they said, geez, now we can really use the money to do some marketing, some other stuff, instead of giving it to the telcos. Because up to that point, basically 80% of the money that the AOL companies were charging to their customers in Europe was paid back to the PTTs for the lines. It was very little margin on top of that. Now, all of a sudden, the margin became much larger. So they were very, very happy with me for some time. And, and he actually, this even uh, by 2002, the price was down to $50 per month per, per megabit. So it was like another five times cheaper because more and more cable came up. And, uh, and so there were more capacity. All of a sudden, there was a lot of transatlantic capacity. And it was, uh, it was really fun, you know, to deal with this guy and, and, and organize these deals, you know. So, so you're, the reason that, you're the reason they could afford to give all those discounts. Yeah, probably. Well, one of not the only one. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not claiming all the all the uh, all the merit here. But uh, there was some interesting times with the telescope back then, and I really played my cards well. I have to say, I had some some incredible support from the United States. My manager at the time was very smart and supported me all the way. A guy called Pete Miller, great guy. But it was it was fun, and we managed to drive the price down enormously. And uh, the problem was what? Then all of a sudden. DSL shows up, okay? So in about 2002, AOL had about globally, I think worldwide, about 25 million users. So imagine that. 25 million users means at peak time, we had about, I don't know which percentage. Before it was a method, we had a 3% peak time utilization of modems. So you needed only 3% of 25 million to have to satisfy users with dial-up lines. With DSL, everything changed. But anyway, there was like probably over a million modems installed worldwide to support this. And this infrastructure is huge. And huge thing like that has huge inertia. You cannot just turn them off like that overnight, okay? And you have to migrate users from the old technology dial-up with to DSL. Now, 
DSL took up very fast in Europe, much faster than the United States, again, for technical reasons. I mean, DSL works well, especially the first one, the first uh, specification of DSL, if you are maximum one and a half, two miles from the central office. When you go farther, it doesn't work anymore. So it's not adapted for situa geographical situation where you have a lot of users passed over a large rural area because they cannot use DSL. They still have to use their modems and, and dial up. Uh, but in Europe, the population is way more concentrated. So dial up to up very fast here. So we had to get rid of all these banks of modems. But at the same time, it was clear that who was providing DSL was the incumbents, was the, the telcos. And, and you cannot, we were back to the model where, okay, I can offer DSL access to my customers, but then I have to pay 90% of what they give me to the, to the telcos anyway. And then where, I, you know, AOL said, no, no, we don't want to become a telco. It's not our DNA, it's not our, you know, we want to remain a content provider. And then, uh, you know, then they made the, the joint venture with, uh, they merged with, Time Warner, which became a, a big problem because there was a lot of rivalry between the management of AOL and Time Warner. In any case, at the end, they could not step up and migrate to DSL in Europe in particular. And that was basically the end of the story because, you know, if you don't have access, you don't have customers. And then they sold various businesses to other local incumbents that had already the network there available. But man, I mean, if you think... When we started talking at this session, we were talking about like 9.6 kilobit circuits for data between data centers across Europe. Now, back already in, in, in that time, towards the end, 2008, 9, we were using Lambda. I mean, we were using uh, wavelength. So that's 2.5 gigabit per second capacity, okay? Throughput, I mean, bandwidth. That's basically what? A factor from 9.6 to kilobit to 2.5 is about, 250,000 factor. So it's, it's factor. several orders of a magnitude. Several orders of magnitude and then some. And this, this famous joke that goes around that says, you know, this so-called Chinese proverb, may you live in interesting times, which apparently is, was supposed to be a curse instead of, you know, be careful what you ask for because you may get it. Those were fantastic times to live in for me. I mean, I was there at the right time, with the right skills, and I really made the best out of it. I'm really fantastic memories. And now, you know, everything is uh, faster, but I got tired of networks. I had enough. So I pulled out. 2010, I pulled out and I don't know nothing anymore. I have, well, I've set up my own little bridge network here to connect to a DSL line because my house doesn't have cable. So I'm in the middle of the olive trees and I had to set up a little uh, wireless network to connect to the nearest house that has a DSL connection. But I'm just playing with these little things now. No, nothing bigger than, <laughs> than you know, 10 meg anymore. <laughs> it's over. AOL eventually kind of broke apart, right? And became not a big thing because the, in, because the internet itself, I mean, the web providers like Google and... Yeah, there were, there were several players. There was Yahoo, there was, there was alternative browsers like Netscape was a great one. And there was one of the, the uh, acquire and kill strategies that AOL used because AOL in the United States acquired CompuServe and then shortly after acquired Netscape, which was supposed to become the browser, but actually right after they signed the deal with... Microsoft to use Internet Explorer as the browser within the AOL client, and they literally killed Netscape. Netscape was a fantastic browser. Was, I, I loved it, but yeah, corporate strategies, you know. And then the merger with, uh, with Time Warner was a big mess because the idea was good. I mean, when, when Steve Case, that was the, the head of the AOL at the time, met with Ted Turner, they agreed AOL as the users, 
Time Warner has the content, you know, the, the news channels, uh, the data, the movies and everything is a perfect wedding, you know. We have the users, you have the customers, let's make, uh, we have the content, let's make a deal. That's really cool. That's a lot of great history. So uh, can anybody, do you, you don't do much in networking anymore, but do you have other work that people might be interested in following? I have set up a website where I collected all the documents. I, I still have documents put up about the EARN activities, but it's called earn-history.net. And if you go on the website, you will find a lot of documents and diagrams and uh, technical papers and archives. They're receiving some pictures of conferences and stuff. And I'm trying to keep that up when, when I have time and I dig into all the files and find minutes of meetings that took place and I try to put everything up. So if people are interested, yeah, they, they can go and check that website. They would find most of what I talked about today in writing as well there. Donald, you're still me, not you, Sharp, on Twitter, right? Well, thanks, Daniel, for coming on and talking through all this history with us. It was great. Thank you, Russ, and thank you, Donald, for listening so patiently. No, it's fine. It's, it, was, it was very interesting and very cool. So, all right, great. And we'll catch you next time on the History of Networking. Subscribe to the History of Networking on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.